Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this weekly wrap-up of all the news about environment and science and nature and wildlife or uh, all kinds of other things that we believe are interesting to you. Um, in short, welcome to the Planet Podcast, which is indeed a podcast about life on our planet. And welcome, Alistair, who I just promoted to co-host since Charlie explained to me how to do that. Uh, so we are now both uh, co-hosts of this show. How are things, Alistair? Have you been watching the Olympics? Because it seems that both the Dutch and the Norwegians are doing quite well. Yeah, indeed. Hi, Alex. Um, yeah, I'm British, but I live here in Norway. So for the Winter Olympics, I'm definitely definitely best for me to be backing the uh, Norwegians, who are um, you know there are only five million people in Norway, but. You know, that's like the combined population of uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco are a little bit more, but they've won more medals at Winter Games than any other country, more than wow. the United States, Northern, more than the Germans, I'm afraid more than the Dutch, more than the former Soviet <laughs> Union. So, yeah, it's blanket coverage here. You, can, you can't get away from it. Um, Teresa Johaug, the cross-country skier, won a second gold medal today by a sort of incredibly thin margin of... Um, 0.4 seconds in this race where it's like a staggered start so you lose out on the, the excitement of seeing them rushing towards the finish but she you know she started a few minutes before her main rivals but um, so you then have to look at the clock to see when her rival racing behind her whether she finishes faster than she has but but Johag won by 0.4 seconds after just ahead of Finland's Kerti Niskanen who didn't quite make it, which must be really bitterly. But the Dutch have done well. Yeah, the Dutch have done well. But these these data are amazing because it takes them about half an hour. So you're you're half an hour doing your utmost, and you, then you win by zero point four seconds. I think that is that is really amazing. And I I recognize what you say about the Norwegians because any time that I went to Norway, wherever I went, I saw people doing sports. So um, uh, that that five million is like really five million people all doing sports and then competing uh, against what did you say Los Angeles and San Francisco? Just a uh, bit more than that the population. Yeah, like, where yeah. I saw where I saw a few people that didn't look like they were doing sports every day last time I checked in in California. Um, and yeah, the Dutch uh, we, we are very proud of Irene Schout. I mean, she didn't just win gold on the 5,000 meter as well as the 3,000 meter. While she was doing it, she also broke uh, both Olympic records. So that is that is, that is amazing. So she uh, just imagine, she's then skating three kilometers, uh, which is, let's say, about two miles. And she does that in less than four minutes. It's three minutes and, and about 57 seconds. So if uh, I made a quick calculation, that is like, 45 kilometers per hour but of course you 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 go a bit slower once you have to to turn around at 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 the end of the the oval so to say so suppose she would be skating in the street she would probably be fined for you know crossing the speed limit of 50 kilometers an hour what an amazing speed to do that and that's for three kilometers so um so we're we're quite proud of her as well and uh, oh, if we yeah. continue this podcast uh, yes. for many, many more years, uh, someday, who knows, the Netherlands might, might beat Norway in the overall total. <laughs> um, but I guess we're still working no on jobs. this. <laughs> so uh, this this wouldn't, of course, be uh, the Planet podcast 
if we would only talk about sports, uh, but there is an important environmental element here because China is saying that the games are green. And so that they were not referring to all those green mountaintops where there was not enough real snow, uh, but they, it's about how they are they are helping to protect the environment. And both China and also the International Olympic Committee, they say that the games are carbon neutral and that any greenhouse gas emissions are offset by measures uh, such as planting forests uh, to, to soak up carbon from the air. And there are some researchers that doubt that the claims made by successive games, not only this time, uh, of all their amazing green credentials that, that they have some doubts about it because uh, look, for instance, China's economy. It's heavily dependent on coal for energy and um, the focus on greener games is a spur to thinking about the carbon footprints of sports and mega events like the Olympics, which transform cities with stadiums and hotels and parks and athlete villages and, 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 and other venues. So I find it, I didn't make all these calculations, but personally, I find it a bit hard to, to believe on first sight that um, this can be done fully carbon neutral. Think friends about all the people that have to, to fly there. So, so yeah. So, so where are you on this, Alistair? Yeah, I think you're right. I'm a bit dubious about some of these claims by um, by the Olympic organizing committees. Um, the, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, says when you read their reports, you know, the games are minimizing construction by reusing five of the venues that were used for the Beijing Summer Olympics in 2008, which, of course, is great. You know, they're using renewable energy to power all the games venues new low-carbon technologies, low-carbon transport, and creating forest, what they call forestry-based carbon sequestration projects, which means basically planting trees. Um, so, you know, the, the Chinese um, organizers reckon that the games are going to emit 1.3 million tons of greenhouse gases. So that's, I worked out about what uh, a city of 90,000 Americans would emit in a year. So it's quite a lot of emissions there. Um, they planted forests around China that they say will soak up more than half a million tons, but you're still left with 800,000 tons there, more or less. Um, they said they're getting donations of carbon credits from partners, but I couldn't figure out exactly where all of this is coming from reading through the documents. Um, the biggest um, amounts of carbon emissions from the games are from venue construction and renovations. So, you know, the, the reusing like the the from the summer games the bird's nest stadium in the center of beijing you know that that i suppose means you know you're just using something that's already there so you're not you're upgrading it a bit probably um and the the uh, the swimming arena and the from the games in 2008 has been repurposed for for curling so that's great you know you're reusing a, a venue there um and then of course, they use there are flights, transport, accommodations for spectators. But with COVID, um, they've had a lucky break in the sense that they've, um, you know, the, the planet is having a lucky break in the sense that people have been unable to go there. That's, of course, terrible for anybody who wanted to go and see these in, in person. But um, the travel, the flights by people coming from abroad are, of course, um, much lower than expected. Um, pretty much 
every games when you look back through it boasts about their greenness um I worked for Reuters um, and many years ago I was both at the Lillehammer Olympics, the Winter Olympics here in Norway and Barcelona in, in 1992, the Summer Games. Um, and even back then, you know, they were putting greenness on, on the agenda there. And Lillehammer, uh, the, the thing that people wrote about most, I remember, was the fact that when you went to buy your meal uh, in some of the venues, the plates were made of potato starch. So you could actually, you could eat not only the food, but then you'd eat your plate and you could eat the knife and fork as well. So, you know, this hasn't really caught on in the world's restaurants yet, but you, know, you no, never know. <laughs> I don't think so, because people often, when they drop something on the table, they don't want to eat it because they're afraid that all kinds of bacteria immediately crawl into the food. So if you put a plate on a table for an hour and then you eat your plate, you're basically not eating from a plate anymore. You're eating from the ta table. So you might just as well throw the food on the table and even forget about that plate. So I can imagine that this has not really set some kind of worldwide uh, trend. And, uh, but it's fascinating to follow um, uh, the Olympics and green. And at the same time, I must say I'm quite impressed with how much China is is uh, is working on 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 making this green and and how much the idea has caught on to to make Olympics green. But what I saw from from uh, from research that suggests that Olympics in general aren't really getting better and more sustainable, uh, even though sustainability is a pillar of the Olympic movement. And, and there's so there's. Last year, this uh, study that uh, looked uh, at, at all these Olympic Games, they gave the gold medal for sustainable games um, to the Winter Games of Salt Lake City all the way back to 2002. And then the runner-up was the Winter Games in Albertville in 1992, so even further back. Uh, and uh, closely followed by, in the same year, uh, those uh, Summer Olympics in Barcelona. So the most sustainable games are from 20 or 30 years ago. Um, uh, it's, uh, so this was a study um, by uh, the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And uh, they said that the worst in sustainability was actually Sochi in 2014. And they looked like things like the, the ecological footprint um, and the cost um, games normally overrun budgets. Uh, but also the use of venues after the games and, and, and public approval. So they, they made a mix of all kinds of factors uh, to look at. But they uh, then said that uh, uh, the uh, looking at, at, at all those games compared, and I got here a graph in front of me, um, you see, for instance, that Beijing in 2008, so the, the Summer Olympics of 2008, was in the middle. It is not extremely green. It's not extremely not green. It's somewhere in the middle. Uh, Sochi and Rio de Janeiro are the two negative outliers. And as I said, uh, Salt Lake City and Albertville are uh, the positive ones. So for once, um, America is pretty green in this uh, statistic. So uh, let's celebrate that. Um, and um, yeah, and I, I, I also believe that uh, sport itself is something important in a, in a sustainable lifestyle. It is healthy to do. If people are more aware of sports, then they will take a bicycle instead of stepping in a car and, and, and those kind of things. 
and you even find sustainability back in in uh, in these uh, SDGs, in these sustainable de- development goals, in the in the uh, UN uh, 2030 agenda for sustainable development. It says that it recognizes the growing contribution of sport uh, to the realization of development and peace in 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 its promotion of tolerance and respect uh, and and the contributions it makes to the empowerment of women and young people, individuals and communities, as well as to the health, education and social inclusion objectives. So the United Nations um, uh, adds uh, sport to uh, to sustainable development. And I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot to say for it that, uh, that they did so. Um, what else do we have for today? Yeah. We were planning to talk about companies and their emissions because there was quite a few on that this week, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. So it's not just the, the Olympics where green promises are coming into the spotlight and being questioned or, or being boasted about. Um, many big companies around the world have set goals to cut emissions and reach net zero emissions in coming decades, often by 2040, 2050, in line with the Paris Agreement or even beating the Paris Agreement. But one study this week suggested that many of them are falling far short, often with sort of dodgy accounting tricks or just promising too much more than they can actually achieve. So this misleading greenwashing is kind of bad news for the planet. And it's denting hopes that the big multinationals who control trillions of dollars um, can show help show the way for the Paris Agreement, where governments have been falling short. Governments have been falling badly short of their commitments here, haven't they? So um, this analysis by the New Climate Institute, which is a European think tank, uh, published on the, this a uh, few days ago, showed that the its estimates are that the 25 leading companies that it reviewed are going to be cutting their emissions by just 40 percent, and not. 100% as they've suggested by their car, net car zero or carbon neutral pledges. So that's a long, long way off what they're planning to do. You know, 40% against 100%. Um, yeah. I was also shocked by those numbers, but it's, it's not all bad news. There are some bright spots. Some companies are doing far better than others. And, and those examples can help others to follow suit. And, and I'm really impressed what I read about a Danish company, Maersk, uh, which is a container shipping giant, which you would intuitively put in the corner of, you know, the worst polluters because shipping is, is, is known as being really, really polluting. They came out best followed by, uh, Apple, Sony and, and Vodafone. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Shipping is often seen as a kind of unregulated bit of the, of carbon emissions, isn't it? Because it's all about something that's international. It's very difficult to pin down who's responsible for it. Um, it's like aviation, isn't it? Planes are kind of unregulated and emissions there. So, so what? Yeah. What? Why? Why does Mersh come out on top here? Yeah, well, it's they. Uh, the, the good thing about aim uh, the, about Mersh is that they aim for net zero shipping emissions by two thousand forty. So. They are in a really difficult industry, known to be very, very polluting. And then they set their aim 10 years earlier than, uh, than, than the governments uh, say that they are doing, which I think is impressive. 
And they have interim targets as well, which is always important. Otherwise, you just uh, kick, the, kick the can down the road. Um, so bunker, the dirty fuel that, that is used uh, by ships, that accounts for 63% of the company's uh, emissions. So it aims to, to shift to using biodiesel and other green fuels. Uh, some of them are based on hydrogen. Um, it's also ordering uh, ships uh, that that can run on these fuels, and it founded a research group for zero, zero carbon shipping. And uh, so these are, I think that is that is amazing for a company like that because you you don't expect them uh, to be uh, leading on 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 green. However, most companies with zero or carbon neutrality pledges are unconvincing according to this study they say that uh, they rely on hiding vital information or that they do accounting tricks and there were some quite well-known names there that that i was i was disappointed to find in a list like this so the analysis finds uh, the headline pledges of companies that include amazon which i'm not surprised about google hitachi ikea uh, phil volkswagen and walmart have low integrity and even worse companies as uh, Accenture, BMW Group, Nestle, Novartis, Saint-Gobain and Unilever have very low integrity and I'm I'm surprised about a few names here because I am always quite impressed with IKEA and um, also by Unilever. I mean Unilever has been leading on a lot of um uh, uh, new sustainable policies uh, for 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 companies. So, uh, surprised to see those names here. Uh, Volkswagen. We knew, of course, that they've been cheating with emissions. So I don't trust Volkswagen at all uh, in, in in their policies. Uh, Amazon. In in the rare case that I order something from Amazon, I get a box that is way too big and then filled with enormous amounts of plastic, and then I have to to look for that uh, little uh, uh, earpiece that I that I need for uh, for for a show like this, um, I, I'm not surprised about that one. But it's interesting to uh, to see uh, those names. Yeah, and then yeah. a positive example maybe is is a type of company that's driving the green shift. Uh, that's the electric car makers and. and Sales are are booming, and uh, we we may be seeing a historic tipping point in sales that really moves us away from those uh, dirty gas guzzlers. And sales of electric car worldwide uh, has hit six point six million last year, and that's about nine percent of total, and is more than tripling their market share from just two years earlier, uh, according to the International Energy Agency. And what was interesting to read is that. In the whole of 2012, so just 10 years ago, 130,000 electric cars were sold worldwide. And that is now the amount that is sold in just one week. So that is an amazing growth in, in, in the sales of electric vehicles. Yeah, this, these are incredible numbers, aren't they? I mean, China's, well, China's the biggest, most populous country in the world, but it's still the leading country buying electric cars. There were 3.4 million which is more than the rest of the world combined. It's just over half of those 6.6 million total. That's an extraordinary statistic. Um, 
you know, the United States uh, sales doubled um, last year to more than half a million. You know, Tesla's the biggest supplier there. I mean, Tesla, a few years ago, nobody heard of Tesla. It didn't exist, right? I mean, and now it's one of the most valuable companies in the world on the stock markets. Um, yeah. And, you know, in in, um, in Norway, where I live, um, is the country that sells the most electric cars per, per capita, and it's kind of an example of how you can do things right, probably to promote these tipping points, like you were saying. You know, so last year, about two thirds, sixty-five percent of all the cars were sold were fully electric. That's against nine percent worldwide. Um, it's the highest percentage in the world by by a long way. The Netherlands is also doing pretty well, um, and places like Sweden and Iceland, um, mostly European countries. So you know, the, the Norwegian. Um, system means that you get exempted from an awful lot of taxes so cars are relatively cheap electric cars are relatively cheap you know so you don't pay value-added tax sales tax of 25 percent you can even buy a sunroof for your tesla and it's exempted from (laughs) value-added tax you know even though this is a pretty luxurious addition for your car Um, you can drive uh, your car on the bus lane into town uh, you pay less in road tolls when you come into town, cities, and you you pay half price on ferries often. Parking's either cheap or um, free. Um, and the government also here wants to ban sales of petrol and diesel cars from 2025, which is one of the earliest dates in the world. So, you know, they won't be selling the sales of new car, petrol and diesel cars. Uh, petrol and diesel cars will, of course, still be on the road, but you won't be able to buy a new one here um, yeah. from 2025 and you know it's 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 just an extraordinary transformation um, I it's drive new, around yeah. in a, I drive around in a decade old Prius but we've recently my wife and I have recently ordered a, a, a small Tesla um, it's the obvious choice you know I still it's drive expensive. in the Netherlands <laughs> a car that's 24 years old <laughs> I once bought it new and now the question is, since I use it so little, it's probably best to keep driving it because if I will buy a new electric car, it also takes an enormous amount of energy to produce that. So um, I keep driving it until it completely falls apart, but it's a Volvo, so it's it's, it's probably uh, keeps it's driving reliable. forever. And um, it's uh, it, what you were saying reminds me a bit of, have you ever seen these two black and white pictures of New York? that are just 10 years apart, and I'm not really sure of what years, but let's say uh, the one is from 2010 and the other from, uh, sorry, from 1910 and the other from 1920 or so. You see the same street. And in the first one, you see only horse-drawn carts. And in the second one, you see only uh, uh, combustion engine cars. In just 10 years' time, this completely changed. And this seems to be another period of 10 years where cars dramatically change, although you don't see it so much on, on a picture from New York in those 10 years, but it's it's dramatic change as well. But amazing, electric yeah. cars are, are not new. Uh, the first cars were actually electric cars before anybody even thought of making them on gasoline. So there's this, this guy uh, in Vermont in 1834, who built the first useful electric motor. And then viable electric cars started up in the, in the 1880s. But the problem was they had these tiny 
ranges. So you had uh, Carl Benz who built the first internal combustion engine in 1886, this three-wheeler. I'm sure you've seen pictures of it. And then you started this movement of these oil-dependent cars, uh, which, of course, starting in, in, in around the 1920s, have been promoted by all kinds of policies because already in those days, uh, the Rockefellers and so were influencing politics. So they made politics in a way that uh, more cars were sold and, and uh, anything electric was not really working well. And then there's there's also this story of this Scottish guy from Aberdeen, Robert Davidson. And he built a prototype electric locomotive in 1841. So there we're, we're like nearly half a century before uh, Carl Benz. And imagine it could go one and a half miles at four miles per hour, which is both not so impressive, but then it was towing six tons uh, electrically before it needed new batteries. And this impressive was so performant, uh, this uh, performance was so Im- Im- impressive that the railway workers got alarmed because it was their job to take care of the steam engines and throw on the coal, etc. So what they did, they destroyed uh, his uh, devil machine, as they called it, and therefore forced uh, the railways to uh, to 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 keep uh, working those um, those steam engines. And if I remember correctly, I think it was in the days of Margaret Thatcher that you still had uh, people employed, and the labor unions kept them in place, whose job it was to throw on coal on the fire, even though there were no steam engines anymore. Um, and um, and that was uh, the bit of the 1980s uh, cleaning up uh, those kind of. Uh, um, those kind of ancient uh, relics of, of a past that was no longer there. So resistance to, to progress and, and a green future um, seems to be basically just as old as, as green innovation. What do you think? Yeah, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But I, th- I think that, you know, we, we may be at this tipping point with electric cars. I mean, even a few years ago, they, they were being written off because they got short ranges and, you couldn't rely on them. They'd run out. There'd be nowhere to charge them. But um, I think we may be sort of facing this sudden switch like you were talking about with the horses. I remember, uh, um, I can remember reading a statistic. I can't remember. But it was about the French army that even in the beginning of the um, the 20th century, the French army was spending more on hay to feed its horses than it was spending on oil to, to run its, uh, to run machinery. You know, wow. so it's this extraordinary shift from, you know, just muscle power of horses to run your army to, um, to, uh, to, 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 to oil, which has been dominating now for, well, a century, right? It's a century and a half yeah. or so. Um, and then all of a sudden we're going to shift over to, um, electric power. You know, as long as we've got, we can get past this Achilles heel of, um, the ranges, but, you know, the cars that we, we're ordering nowadays have got, ranges of i don't know 500 kilometers perhaps for a decent car um and the you know there are many more charging points yeah. um and around Norway, there's charging points all over the place now um and you can sometimes you know you can generally slot yourself in and charge pretty easily there 
Yeah, it's 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 amazing to see that the French army was kind of inventing biofuels by by <laughs> using using hay to fight a fight a war, which reminds me of this amazing book of Barbara Tuckman of uh, the Guns of August. I don't know if you ever read it, but it's about the the August nineteen fourteen. It's the first months of uh, of the First World War, and uh, she's describing the the complete folly on all sides of, of how we stumbled into this horrible war. And um, one thing I remember her writing about the French army is that there was this this high-ranking uh, French um, general or whatever who wrote a memo to, to the, 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 the leading um, uh, generals in the army saying, well, we found out now that um, the uh, the Germans have uniforms that are in the color of uh, of nature, they are green or gray, and it makes them much more difficult to see. Um, so it's difficult to shoot at them. Maybe we should also change our uniforms and wear something in the colors of, of gray and green or in the colors of, of leaves. And the man was degraded for coming with such an outrageous proposal because they were so proud of their red and blue and, and, and the parrot kind of colors of their uniforms with all kinds of high plumes which made them extremely visible, um, but uh, they were not very progressive in uh, in the first year of um, of the First World War. But I'm drifting off, as you know. I always love uh, reading about history. But um, yeah, we were talking about electric cars, and uh, they aren't all good. I mean, they yeah, it's 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 less air pollution, of course. Uh, it's better better for cities, um, but it's it's not always not all aspects are helpful for the climate. I mean, if you if you charge them uh, with electricity that's generated from coal power, uh, that is of course not not truly efficient. It is more efficient than um, if if you would, let's say if you would use um, uh, the same uh, petrol for a car or for a centrally located, um, uh, uh, what do you say, factory where you, where you make the electricity, then the centrally acquired electricity is better than than, uh, than if you put petrol in, in your car because it's more efficient. Of course, a, big, a bigger machinery is better than one that is so small that it has to be driven around. Um, but... Yeah, if you if you use coal power to to charge your car, it looks green, but it isn't. Um, of course, the batteries are made using ingredients ingredients like lithium, and we all know the stories about how damaging the the mining of lithium is. So, so altogether, yes, it's progress, uh, but there's nothing wrong with taking a bicycle or go for a walk or. Um, have good public transport, use buses and trains instead of your own car, which is highly inefficient in the sense that the purpose of a car is to transport you, which is, let's say, 80 kilos, but a car is 800 kilos. So you're just, you have just a 10% efficiency because that's, that's what needs to be transported. So you're transporting 800 kilos of, of metal that doesn't need to go anywhere and that at the end of the day is back where it started, but it costs an enormous amount of energy. So let's say bicycles the other way around. So that's, um, uh, but I'm a Dutchman, as, as you can hear. We were, we, we, we promised the listeners to talk about glaciers as well. Let's, let's move to those glaciers. 
Yeah, right. So, yes, I mean, I'm looking out the window here in the dark. There's um, a glacier forming in my my garden, I think, at the moment. It's been really cold for <laughs> the last few weeks. So I doubt if it's going to melt for a while now. Um, but, yes, glaciers. Um, there was a study published in Nature Geoscience this week, um, just three days ago, um, called Ice Velocity and Thickness of the World's Glaciers, which is, um, um, which is interesting, really, because it shows that there's less water in glaciers than previous, previously believed. It's really difficult to measure how much ice there is in a glacier. You can do it. Um, you can do it by satellites to a certain extent. You can drill cores down through the glacier to the bedrock and try and figure out how much there is. Um, and you can figure out, for example, you know, um, the gravity attraction, for example, of Greenland. Gra- Greenland pulls the water up from the North Atlantic because there's so much ice there, and Antarctica does the same. So there's different ways of measuring what how much ice there is. But this study was about glaciers on land, not not the big ice sheets in Greenland and um, Antarctica. But it found that there's 11% less ice than had been estimated before. So that's quite a lot of water. Um, you know, that's because um, this water is you know, it's melting faster because of climate change at the moment. The ice is melting faster. And so there's there's currently a rush down the world's rivers because of this uh, extra melt caused by climate change. And the worry here is that fresh water supplies coming off these glaciers could peak sooner than anticipated. This This can affect millions of people who depend upon glaciers for irrigation especially in the in the dry season when it's quite hot and the water coming flowing off glaciers can help to provide a steady flow throughout the dry season to irrigate crops and provide drinking water of course to people and and other sort of everyday use so they're kind of a way of regulating flows um so you know the, the the Glaciers um, on land also contribute to sea level rise. Again, a plug for my book, The Great Melt, which is about uh, sea level rise around the world. Um, but but glaciers on land, you know, from the Andes to the Alps, from the Himalayas to uh, to um, uh, to Alaska, uh, are pretty tiny compared to the big ice sheets on Antarctica and Greenland that keeps um, climate scientists worried about sea level rise up at night. So um, if if all the glaciers um, in the world, on around the world, from uh, the Andes to the Alps, were to melt. Sea levels would rise by about forty centimeters. Uh, but by contrast, Greenland has seven meters of sea level rise locked up in it, and Antarctica, which is the size of the United States and Mexico combined, fifty-seven meters. So you know these, the, but still, the glaciers are near where people live, so they're vital. Um, this 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 study estimated, you know, for example, in the tropical Andes, there was 27% less than the consensus a few years ago. In parts of Russia, Northern Asia, also less um, than expected. And in a few areas, there's a bit more than people had thought, though. In the high mountains of Asia, um, a bit more ice than expected. In Patagonia as well, uh, a little bit more. So... Uh, what what does this all mean? Um, I, I would say for Asia, that's that's good news. It's one of I think one of the most worrying stories of climate change is is that the Himalaya, which uh, gives water to what is it more than one and a half billion people, that that is losing its 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 water. So it's good that there is a little bit more. 
Um, but uh, what happens now? Can you say that there's first too much water because it's melting, so you have more meltwater, but then we come in a phase that there's not enough water because it has all melted in the glaciers. Is, is that correct? That's right, yeah. Uh, it's also that um, I mean, it'll be gone from the glaciers, but it will be raining and snowing still, so that the, the, the seasonal snows will will come and go and melt and, and fill up the... But the, the flow won't be as regular as it is now because in the dry season, especially some of these glaciers are feeding the rivers uh, that help, that are needed for agriculture down, down, downhill. But yeah, in some places um, they use this extra glacial melt is being used for hydropower. In Iceland, they've added, they've expanded some hydropower facilities and they're generating more electricity now than they used to because of this extra pulse of melt from the glaciers that are projected to be pretty much gone in Iceland in the, in the next 200 years. Um, Greenland, of course, you know, they can they can start building um, uh, uh, new power plants because some ancient ice there on the ice sheet is starting to, to thaw. It's spinning turbines that are that are generating electricity near Nuuk, the capital. I visited there a few years ago, actually, and saw this this huge, great um, power plant which is embedded in a mountainside there, wonderful place where I was working for Reuters as environment correspondent. Um, and, and there are some of the ancient ice there that started to fill up there. But it, you're right, it's, the worst thing is in, in um, it's threatening livelihoods, most of all in Asia, where, as you say, you know, many of the, the, the great rivers, the, the Indus, the Ganges, um, and up in the Tibetan plateau, the Yangtze, the, the Yellow River, the Mekong, all rise there, and they're, they're feeding. They're, these rivers are vital arteries for, for one and a half to two billion people. Um, and there are, you know, but there are, so the, the fact that there's more ice there than expected in Asia, in parts of Asia is good news. Yeah. Um, but it's still, the trend is worrying because of climate change. Yeah. And it's, it's also a call for better political cooperation because I understand that people doing research in, uh, how, how much ice there really is and how the trends are, et cetera, that they don't get access, uh, on all the, glaciers uh where where they want to go so um yeah so that's that's uh we we, we all we we all often see that of course in um, in in anything uh, green that we work on i read uh another recent uh, glacier study uh, which was also in nature and that shows that even the glaciers on the mount everest uh and everybody knows when you hear mount everest that we're talking about really high are not safe from from climate change. This this other study broke quite a few records. Well, first of all, the scientists scaled the world's highest peak to monitor the mountain's highest altitude glacier, so the South Coal Glacier on the Mount Everest, which stands at about eight kilometers high above sea level. That is twenty six thousand feet. That is nearly as high as a jet plane is 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 flying we go transatlantic um so they they went all the way that high to to study uh, climate related ice loss and they also broke the record of installing the two highest weather stations on earth and they also uh, collected uh, the world's highest ice core from the glacier and I can only imagine how 
horribly difficult that must have been to collect that ice core and then to to keep it intact and then to bring it down from from such a height where uh, I would never think of, of of going there myself. This is the the death zone as it's uh, it's known and uh, it's it's uh, it's it's the area where there's just too little oxygen uh, to survive. So you can only be there for a relatively uh, short time. So that's a, that's an amazing feat. So what they found yeah. is that the South Coal is losing ice about 80 times faster than it took for the ice to accumulate on, on the glacier surface. So the, the, the team's core analysis showed that ice that took 2,000 years to form on the glacier has completely melted away since the 1990s. So you lose in 30 years what we've been building up over or what what the planet has been building up for 2,000 years. And that is um, uh, typically a sign of times that we are... We are not... I mean, that's that's another thing that you could say, this is not sustainable. We are uh, burning carbon uh, that took 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 millions and hundreds of millions of years to accumulate in the earth and we're we're burning it in 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 in, in decades and uh, that is you can't do that and you can't you can't treat your planet in such a way because this is bound to have consequences and and we are already seeing those so um yeah so i think yeah, all that on, on glaciers. I'm looking at the clock. I promised 45 minutes. The original title was 45 minutes on um, uh, looking at, at the news, but then to attract a few more listeners, which we were successful at. Thank you all for listening. For those that are listening live, I know more people will listen uh, later once we published it. But uh, thanks for for joining us live. I don't go yet because uh, I want to announce um, uh, a few more podcasts for this week. So tomorrow uh, there is Steve Ramash. Uh, that's promising to be very interesting. And I'm right now going to my agenda to see what time it is. That is um, tomorrow at, um, I have to click something away, tomorrow at two o'clock, Eastern time, so let's say New York time, uh, at six hours to it for Europe. So that means uh, eight o'clock in Europe. So basically, we're starting one hour earlier than we started today with Steve Romash. So that is about Earth observations, how you can use data from satellites uh, to monitor uh, environmental processes all over uh, Europe, for instance, forest cover is the first one that comes to mind that you can check where are we losing forests or where are new forests coming up. But you can you can use all kinds of environmental data and those data are essential for policy making because although uh, many politicians ignore science, uh, you need data to make good policies and Steve is collecting these data. And uh, so that is tomorrow. And then uh, we have an interesting other uh, podcast uh, next week and that is going back to my agenda again that is next week I think on Monday yes next week on Monday same time as with Steve Ramage tomorrow uh, so no sorry that's the wrong thing it starts at 11 eastern time Monday 14th at 11 eastern time 
um, we uh, have in the podcast uh, Noemi Knight, and she is a children's book author who made a beautiful little book about the Maui dolphin. And if you've never heard of the Maui dolphin, you uh, should not blame yourself because I think there's only about 60 of them left uh, near New Zealand, near the North Island of uh, New Zealand. And she wrote a lovely book about a dolphin that she calls Papoto. And she explores all kinds of important issues that the new generation should also know about just as the parents that are reading the book to their kids. Um, it's also about overfishing and pollution and also how you can help to save the ocean. So it's, um, uh, I'm, I'm becoming a book promoter because uh, we already uh, had mentioned uh, uh, the uh, the big melt uh, of uh, Alistair uh, about uh, yes. <laughs> guys buy that book is really good <laughs> and um, it's um, uh, which which is about of course sea level rise and and the melting of uh, of, of 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 the glaciers and and the big ice sheets but this is also a nice uh, children's book that I also want to uh, promote and then of course uh, next week on Thursday can we count on you again Alistair absolutely yes thanks Alex that, yeah. That would be wonderful. So this one is the easiest to announce because um, it is every week on the same day and at the same time. So you can now just make this a regular thing in your calendar that every Thursday at 3 o'clock Eastern time, so that is noon in California. I see one listener from California at least. Um, uh, that uh, means uh, 9 o'clock in the evening in most of Europe and that is 8 o'clock in the evening for those that are uh, listening in the UK and those names that I remember uh, that I recognize from the list, I think I've covered most of the areas and the time zones that uh, that you are in. With that, um, I would like to wish you all a beautiful day. I would like to thank Alistair for uh, being here, co-host for the first time. Thank you. Wonderful honor, speak. Alex. Always, <laughs> always great to chat, to chat with you on this podcast. It's a lot Let's of stay. fun. Stay on the Zoom call. We always have this kind of after party with the two of us where we keep on chatting and it sometimes goes on just as long. Hey, guys, thanks for uh, for listening and hope to see many of you uh, back uh, tomorrow already. Thanks for the clapping as well. Um, uh, don't forget to um, uh, to like and to follow and to uh, all those things you can do on social media, including telling your friends and family, etc., to follow this show. And now I'll stop. I'll be speaking too long. Have a great day, guys. Bye-bye. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Bye.